0: Good morning, everyone. Yeah, uh, my name's Jeremy. Uh, I'm on the leadership team here. Um, We're continuing our series through the book of 1 Samuel, uh, the dawn of a kingdom. Um, Now, I've been given three chapters to preach on today. So, um, obviously, I've had to sort of summarize huge portions of that and just focus on one tiny bit. But all the same, I do hope you've all brought your sleeping bags. (laughs) Um, Now, if you're you're new just joining us today or you've not been with us on the journey, I just want to briefly try and recap on the story so far. Well, the book of 1 Samuel is named after the great prophet Samuel and a prophet is someone who speaks on behalf of God. Now, Samuel had anointed a man called Saul king. Now, for anointed, just think crowned. Uh, So Saul had become the first king of the nation of Israel. Now, uh, the Bible tells us Saul was head and shoulders above everyone else in Israel. He started out as a really good king, and then he went downhill quite badly. So let's just think, what's he like? A guy who's seven foot tall and then goes to the dark side. Basically, Saul is Darth Vader. Um, He's got a son called Jonathan, who, uh, if you read the Bible, he's one of the kind of most genuine, honest, um, and and courageous guys we come across in the Bible. So he's Luke Skywalker. And um, the the main hero of the book of 1 Samuel, and indeed 2 Samuel, is a guy called David. David. We first meet David when he's uh, working as a shepherd on his dad's farm, when Samuel turns up and suddenly uh, anoints him as the next king of Israel. I mean, Saul's still reigning. Uh, It's quite a big deal when you're a teenager suddenly realizing you're being told you're going to be king. I wonder how he coped with that. So what was David like? Well, we learn that David tells us one time he's had to wrestle lions and bears to protect the sheep. So I'm guessing he's sort of quite hench. Um, Also, we learn that uh, David was a very gifted musician uh, at times when uh, Saul was going a bit mad. He used to send for David to play on the harp. So he's a mean player of stringed instruments. He also was a singer-songwriter, and many of the lyrics of the songs he wrote are recorded for us in the book of Psalms. So David, well, if you're my generation, he's probably a kind of cross between Sylvester Stallone and Eric Clapton. Uh, And for the the younger generation, maybe Hugh Jackman, John Mayer. Um, More importantly, the Bible tells us that he was a man after God's own heart. So David was, uh, he loved God followed God now he'd shot to fame when he'd, uh, he'd killed the Philistine giant Goliath with a slingshot and later on he'd, he'd become a great commander in Saul's army, he'd had loads of spectacular military victories he'd become the king's son-in-law he was at the height of his success uh, all these great promises it seemed to be coming to fruition, he could see his career path and then it all went pear-shaped Saul became enraged with jealousy and kept on trying to kill him. After three lobs of a spear, David eventually gets the message and decides that he has to go on the run. David must have been wondering what on earth was happening. There were all these promises. He was, he was there. And now, now, how was it all going to work out? How, how were these promises going to come true? He must have been wondering, what was God doing in this? Where was God in this? Well, in actual fact, God had a plan for him. Much like the nation of Israel 500 years before, David was about to embark on his own wandering in the wilderness experience, where he would have lots of trials that would teach him to be the kind of God, uh, the kind of king that God was looking for. So, uh, we join our story today whilst David is a fugitive on the run from Saul, and he arrives at the priestly town of Nob. So if you have a Bible and want to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 21, we're reading from verses 1 to 9, and the words should come up on the screen. Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest, and Ahimelech came to meet David trembling, and said to him, uh, Why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Himelech the priest, "Um, uh, The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever's here. And the priest answered, David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread if the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, truly women have been kept from us uh, always when I go on expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy even when it's an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it's taken away. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day Detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Then David said to Ahimelech, Then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I've brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah. Behold, it is here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you'll take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, There is none like that. Give it to me. So, Ahimelech the priest is a bit concerned when David turns up. I mean, he's the command, as far as the priest knows, he's the command of the king's guard. It's a bit strange him turning up on his own. David then goes on to tell him, basically, a lot of rather unconvincing lies. Um, Now, why does David lie? Um, we don't know entirely why he lies, uh, we can guess. It could be just to save his own skin. It could be in some ways he's trying to protect the priests so that they have plausible deniability when, uh, when Saul comes asking questions. Or it might be that he's a bit ashamed. After all, he'd fallen from grace. He was, he was a superstar success and now he's a fugitive on the run. Whatever, we know from God's word that God doesn't want us to lie. And if we were to leap ahead to the next chapter, we would find out that David's lies indirectly lead to dreadful consequences for all the town of Nob. Because the very dodgy Doeg the Edomite sends message back to Saul. And this results in Saul ordering the summary execution of all the priests of Nob, and then going on to slaughter every man, woman, child, and even animal in the town of Nob. So lying can have all sorts of unexpected consequences. (sighs) Anyway, we're getting ahead of ourselves. So David is asking for bread. I mean, it's it's all a bit suspicious. He'd hardly go on this top secret expedition without any provisions or weapons. Um, But Ahimelech can see that his need's real. Uh, He says all he's got on hand is the bread of the presence. Now, this was a special holy bread that was baked once a week, and, uh, uh, and it was displayed on a gold table in the tabernacle, which is a kind of temple. And only the priests were allowed to eat it as as what we call the fellowship offering. They had to eat it in the tabernacle in the presence of God. Um, And so Ahimelech just asks a few questions to be sure that um, David and his men have not become richly unclean by having had sex recently. And David duly lies again. Um, But nevertheless, David's need is real. Now this story was referred to by uh, Jesus in the gospel stories. Um, You can read it, the same stories in Matthew 12, Mark 2 and Luke 6. And the disciples were, uh, the Pharisees were having a go at the disciples because they were picking grain on the Sabbath and they said they were breaking the law. And in response Jesus taught that genuine human need is more important than Sabbath traditions. We can be Sure ourselves also that when we're in God's purposes, he will supply our daily bread. Or as Jesus said in Matthew 6, therefore do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. So David having the food and Goliath's sword, then he uh, decides he wants to escape further from Saul. And he decides to go to the city of Gath, which is a Philistine city. And coincidentally, Gath is the hometown of the giant Goliath. That's Goliath, the person that David very famously killed with a slingshot. And he's going there with Goliath's sword, Let's see how this works out for him, shall we? Um, So carrying on reading from uh, 1 Samuel 21, chapter 10. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, is not this David, the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you've brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house?" So, not unsurprisingly, David is recognized, but he has a cunning plan, and that is to behave as a kind of a caricature of someone who's mentally ill. So, yeah, he contorts his face, he's scribbling on the gatepost, dribbling constantly. and the most amazing thing about this plan is it actually works. Apparently Achish, the king of Gath, is not lacking in madmen. Um, Nottingham was known for its lace, Melton Mowbray for its pork pies, and clearly the city of Gath is well known for its madmen. So <laughs> David escapes, and, uh, and he ends up holed up in a cave, a place called the Cave of adalam And whilst he was there, he's joined by his family and uh, about 400 people who the Bible describes as everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul. Oh, such fun. (laughs) So how do we think David is going on in his trials? Um, He's lied persistently to the high priest And that's led to dire consequences. Um, He made very unwise, rather foolish decisions going to a place that God never told him to go. So he was in danger and in distress and he was forced to uh, take on a character or an identity that was not his. People like us would never get into that situation, would we? It's not too good a start for our, our future king of Israel. So, what happened next? Well, as the next few chapters unfold, we see that suddenly there's a change in David. He stops being David, the liar, and the, the coward, and he, he grows in character. He, he takes responsibility for the best he made in, in Nob. He, takes responsibility for organizing sanctuary for his parents in uh, the, the country of Moab. And what's more, he seems to inspire loyalty in this, uh, this, this group of 400 miserable misfits who've gathered around him. And he leads them into an army that goes and rescues the Israelite city of Keilah when they're under oppression from the Philistine armies. All in all, what we see is David increasingly becomes a man guided by God through the prophetic word and also through the leading of the new high priest, Abiathar. Essentially, David suddenly becomes the kind of king that God always intended him to be and the kind of king Israel needed. So, how did David stop his lying? How did he keep his identity? How did he get out of his cave and start becoming the king he was supposed to be? And for us, how do we avoid the temptations to lie? How do we stay true to our identities? How do we cope when we're struggling and under pressure or suffering? It would be wonderful... If there was some way, some way we know what was going through David's head whilst he was stuck in that cave, some way of knowing what was going through his head and what brought about that change, uh, fortunately there there is. Remember me saying David was a singer-songwriter. If you um, have a Bible with you and want to turn to Psalm 34, um, now here we are. Now, in my uh, Bible, this is called, titled, Taste and See that the Lord is Good. And it says, it's of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and he went away. Now, in Genesis twenty. 26, verse 1, we learn that Abimelech is a name given to the king of the Philistines. So basically, Psalm 34 is what was going through David's head, what he wrote after going through his experience in Gath. I'll just read it. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt His name together. I sought the Lord, and He answered me, and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to Him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear Him and delivers them. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Now, I don't want to turn this into a sermon about Psalm 34. But what I hope you'll see is that God's goodness and salvation has suddenly become very real to David. And that's summed up in that tagline, "Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. So what David is saying is that the answer to his problems was to worship God. Now, why should worship be the answer to the problems of lying and not living in line with our true identity? Well, to begin with, we need to ask, what is worship? Well, worship comes from the, the word worship. In other words, worship is about what we put our worth or our value in. Then, in fact, to worship something is to put your ultimate trust your ultimate value in that thing. Now, everyone worships something. Even people who say that they're atheists or they don't believe in any kind of God have got something that they put their trust in. Often these things aren't necessarily bad. They're they're often very good. It's very common for people to put their ultimate value in their families or or success or their career. But... um, as long as they're just good things, but if they become ultimate things, that can become crushing and lead to problems. Uh, a common thing that people put their, their trust in or, or, or is something that controls their life is being accepted by other people, being a people pleaser. Uh, you, you spend your whole life uh, just... Uh, trying to live up to people's expectations or what you feel are people's expectations of you, and it's exhausting. Uh, I know I've struggled with being a people pleaser on and off throughout my life. I've had a bit of breakthrough uh, in recent years, but it, it's a problem I still struggle with. The Bible has a word for something that we worship that's not God, and that is an idol. Now, we normally think of idols as sort of statues that people bow down and worship. And indeed, 500 years before our story today, when the people of Israel were wandering in the desert for 40 years, there was an incident where they made a golden calf and a load of people were worshipping that. And it worked out disastrously for them. So God is very clear that he wants people to worship him and not worship idols. And in actual fact... He's doing that is really good for us. And let me explain. I'll give you an example. A very common idol that people have is success and our careers. Now, of course, if you want to get on and everyone, you want to be successful. And that is going to take a bit of sacrifice. You're going to have to sacrifice time and a bit of effort. And that's okay if success in your career is a good thing, but if success and career is an ultimate thing, then you'll start sacrificing things you shouldn't. You'll sacrifice your friends and your family to, to get on in your career. History teaches that idol worship has always been associated with child sacrifice. And how many of us know people in careers who've sacrificed their children to their career when their parents are so involved in their careers that they're farmed out um, uh, and the kids never see them. My day job is working as a GP, and uh, I know many people in medicine for who that's been a problem. And to my shame, for me at times, that's been an issue. So it's a problem if you succeed and success is your idol. What about if you don't succeed? What about if you fail in the exams? What about if, if you, you don't make the breakthrough? Um, what about if your career never takes off? Or what if you lose your job and, and you end up unemployed? Or what if you end up in a job that the world considers as very lowly and menial? Then you'll be Crushed. If you put all your worth and value in that then you will feel worthless you'll be angry you'll be depressed you'll be angry at god the problem i would ask you is who are you which god are you angry at you're angry at the god the idol of your own creation the real god never told you to do that the real god never let you down and that idol can never forgive you because it's a dumb idol only the real god can forgive you. So that's, that's, that's what, about, what about lying? Why did David lie? And why do we lie? Well, at the time that we lie, at that very moment, something is more important to us than the truth. Now, I accept that there are occasions when that could be a real valid thing, if it was genuinely to save our lives or to save the life of another person. But let's be honest, it's not often that, is it, really? I mean, usually when we lie, when I lie, it's, it's about hiding our wrongdoing. It's about covering up things t- so that we don't look so bad. It's about making ourselves look good or, or bigger than we are. Now, if following the truth is God's way, what we're doing, we've made an idol of our own self-image and of our own pride. Uh, I want to share with you something that's very hard for me, um, and my own experience of lying. Um, and um, it, the reason I'm doing it is, is I hope it is helpful for you. Um, and um, my God has told me that I should only boast in my weakness, because when I boast in my weakness, then he is strong. Um, I've been married for nearly 30 years, and before we got married, there were some issues from my past that I never shared with my wife. I mean, I wasn't a Christian, and um, there were all sorts of reasons that I don't want to go into right now, but the simple answer is I should, have, I should have shared them with my wife before we were married. Well, life went on. I had my career, and we had kids, and, uh, and those issues from the past faded from my mind. I buried them. I buried them so deeply that I never thought of them. It was a different life. And to my very great shame, it was 25 years later, on one day in 2013, when the Holy Spirit fell in power at Grace Church one Sunday, that God spoke to me very clearly about, about bringing out Hidden secrets from the past. So what was I to do? Um, was I to keep it hidden? Was I to keep on worshiping this this idol of of the the strong Christian gentleman or the uh, the successful guy, um, the the guy with integrity? Or was I was I to confess and and just yeah, own up to, to my past or whatever the consequences. The thing that kept me or, or or sustained me or gave me strength in that moment was a line a verse from Revelation twelve, where it talks about those who have conquered and overcome the devil, and it says that they've overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. And that gave me strength to know that whatever happened, that that my God, my Jesus loved me so much and through his blood, whatever happened, there would come a time when I would be able to testify to his mercy and grace. Now, fortunately, well, some of you may know my my wife, Julie, who's a, a wonderful gracious woman of God and um, although it is it was a very tough time for us Um, she's amazingly gracious and it was through confession and repentance um, and a time of healing. Uh, Also I needed to deal with the issues from the past Uh, and I had some prayer counselling with two of the elders and was able to deal with that. So Now I can stand before you and say that through the love of my Saviour, Lord Jesus, and by his blood, I have overcome and I can testify that he is good. So how can we change our natural tendency to worship the wrong thing and transfer our worship to God where it belongs? Well, if we go back to David's psalm, we can see that what he did was to take the truths he knew about God. And he's saying we should chew on them and taste them with the taste buds of our heart until they become sweet and precious and beautiful to us. To paraphrase the great American theologian Jonathan Edwards, that's the difference between knowing honey is sweet and tasting the sweetness of honey. So once once the, the promises and what we know of God is so beautiful to us, then we offer them back to God in worship. I believe that God wants to teach us that when we're suffering or struggling with everyday life, and unfulfilled dreams and promises, one of the things we need to be sure of is that we're not worshipping an idol of our own making. We need to be sure we're turning to the real God. We can turn to him, we can bring our struggles to him because he's the only one who actually is God. Now, before I became a Christian, I thought that God must be a very insecure sort of being if he needed people to be constantly telling him how wonderful he was. But I came to realize that worship is actually mainly for us. It's about us getting our priorities straight. It's about us transferring our worship from the idols of our heart to the real God. It's, it's the difference between knowing about God to knowing God. It's the difference between knowing that honey is sweet and tasting the sweetness of honey. It's only when we experience the beauty of God that it transforms us, and it takes us off the throne of our own lives, and it puts God on the throne of our own lives where He belongs. And when God is on the throne, what he says about us becomes real for us. So now I want to demonstrate this kingdom principle of worship changing our perspective. Just think of Jesus in heaven before he came to earth. The eternal God the Son had perfect fellowship with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. He had the worship of of the whole heavenly host, what, what, what on earth would persuade him to give up all of that and come down to earth, to, to, to live as a penniless preacher, to, to, be, uh, to suffer, to be betrayed, to be tortured, and to die a terrible death on the cross? Well, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, tells us we should be looking to Jesus, the founder and perfect of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So what was the joy that was set before him? What did Jesus not have in eternity that that he had to come to earth for? The answer is you. You. Jesus set his love on you. He, he so delighted in you. He so longed to see you uh, set free from the shackles of sin and shame, to see you purified, to see you lifted up, to see you become fully human, what you were always meant to be. That, that's why he did it. He did it for you. And he did, He didn't stay in the grave. He was resurrected on the third day and he's lifted high and he's seated at the right hand of God. And he's right now before the Father. He's praying for you. You're not, whatever you may think of yourself, you're not rejected. You are more loved than you will ever know. You've been adopted by your true heavenly father. You are a co-heir with Christ. One day you will see him face to face and you will know him as you are fully known. One day he will wipe away every tear. And one day you will be able to see that all your sufferings are light and momentary afflictions that have been preparing for you an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. One day your true heavenly father will look on you with utter delight and tell you how much he loves you, how proud he is of you, and how much he delights in you. So chew on that. Revel in that. Let that melt your heart with love for the one who did that for you. Pray about it. Confess it aloud. Rejoice in it. And so worship God in it. Rick. Thank you. Yeah. It's in worship that we taste and see the goodness of God to us. It's in worship that we transfer the attractions of our hearts from the idols of success, approval, and comfort and power to the only thing, to the only one truly worthy of our praise. And we're going to continue in that now as we sing.